Previously on Flying the Line, the union pilots of National Airlines win a hard-fought battle after a prolonged strike. But little did they know, the struggle they were fighting against CEO George Baker was far from over. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 14, The Ordeal of E.P. McDonald. Part one. Three little words. You are fired. They can bring on a sinking feeling, for hardly any salaried professional is in a position to say, take this job and shove it to quote a well-known country western song. Some salaried professionals, such as stockbrokers, accountants, and college professors, can always find another job doing pretty much what they were doing before, not airline pilots. A fired airline pilot rarely gets another airline job. Alpa has, therefore, worked very hard to make those three little words as difficult as possible for management to utter. ALPA established its Grievance and Conciliation Department in 1944, and only a pilot in serious trouble can understand how reassuring its existence can be. Not every pilot whom ALPA has defended over the last 50 years deserved to be reinstated, but the end goal of its policy has always been that the pilot deserved a full, fair, and orderly hearing. Sometimes Dave Banky was a bit reluctant to defend a pilot accused of drinking on duty, but he never failed to do it. Historically, an argument can be made that management is far more likely to overlook safety violations than is ALPA. That is, if you consider safety in totality, and not just in the single area of pilot performance. And ALPA has never knowingly insisted upon the reinstatement of an incompetent pilot. It has just made sure that management, or the Federal Aviation Administration, proved actual incompetence beyond a shadow of a doubt. At times, Banky defended cases that rankled ALPA members. One such case involved an American Airlines pilot named Sisto who jokingly engaged the gust lock of a DC-4 flying between Dallas and Los Angeles in 1948, causing it to roll inverted. Sisto lost his job, but Banky defended his right to a full hearing, even though many ALPA members grumbled that such blatantly unprofessional conduct hardly merited ALPA's intervention. Banky insisted, however, that every possibility of extenuation be exhausted before a pilot's termination. Even Sisto could argue, with some justification, that testing an airplane's performance with the gust lock engaged might add to aviation's overall knowledge. A revenue flight was hardly the place to conduct such an experiment, but nevertheless, a full, fair hearing is the way to establish that. Edward Patrick McDonald's case provides the classic example of how an ordinary pilot benefits from ALPA when somebody tries to fire them for no good reason. 
Of all the incidents in which Alba has defended pilots over the years, McDonald's case may be the microcosm that illustrates all the others. Ed McDonald ultimately retired from National Airlines to live in Vero Beach, Florida with his wife. He might have been forced to become a businessman had it not been for Alpa. The story of how he survived to become a 747 captain, despite an attempt to fire him, is a fascinating one. In the aftermath of the 1948 strike, management vowed to get Ed McDonald and other selected strikers, including Charlie Ruby and Bob Rohan, and they would stop at virtually nothing to dismiss the ringleaders of the 1948 strike. As one pilot said years later, the aftermath of the strike was worse than the strike itself. They called it the War of the Blues and Grays, and survivors of the National Airlines strike of 1948 unanimously agree that only a miracle prevented somebody from getting killed before it was over. Banky's promise that Alpa loyalists at National would never have to fly with a scab proved impossible to keep. The back-to-work agreement required the scabs to go to the bottom of the seniority list, which meant, of course, that most of them would be furloughed. The 168 scabs had management's promise of a permanent job, but the promises were no better than similar ones they had made earlier to Alpa pilots. There was one hitch, however. In the interim, until the Alpa loyalists could be requalified, the scabs would continue flying. This gave both the scabs and management a clever idea. What would happen, they wondered, if management could afford to keep all 168 scabs on payroll long enough to petition the National Labor Relations Board for an election to decertify ALPA as the airline's bargaining agent? There were only 145 ALPA strikers to begin with, and by the time the strike was settled, that number had shrunk to 126. That meant that the scabs could outvote the regular ALPA pilots, establish a new union, and abolish the old seniority rules. National Airlines CEO George Baker agreed to do it. So began the War of the Blues and Grays. The nickname referred to the color of the pilot uniform. As a token of his pledge of permanency to the scabs, Baker had changed the NAL uniform from gray to blue after the strike began. He had never paid his pilots an allowance for uniforms anyway. So this meant that on top of everything else, the returning pilots would be out a good chunk of money for new uniforms. They rebelled at Baker's vengeful pettiness, returned to work wearing the pre-strike gray uniform, and defied Baker to fire them. He backed down. It was only a few weeks since his miraculous religious conversion, and he wasn't ready to shed his new self-image. So, for the foreseeable future, the scabs would wear blue in the Alpa Loyalist gray. Occasionally, this confused the passengers when a mixed scab-Alpa crew flew together. Had the passengers known what was going on in the cockpit, they would have been within their rights and asking for a parachute. There had been occasional fistfights on the picket line, and there would now be blows in the cockpit. It was probably a bad idea to mix scab and alpa crews, but Nationals management insisted on it. 
This difficulty was actually a minor one, however, compared with Banker's attempts to fire ALPA's leadership group at National Airlines outright, in clear violation of the settlement. His first tactic was medical. As part of the settlement, each ALPA striker had to take a standard medical exam with a physician of the company's choice. But leader Charles Ruby suspected management's plan and organized a local doctor in Miami to give pilots physicals the day before they were assigned to go to the company's doctor. The company's doctor turned down every one of those strikers who would ultimately go to the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins to prove their actual medical worthiness. A more troubling tactic initially used by the company was to try to certify the National Pilots Association, rather than ALPA, as the bargaining agent. The scabs hired a lawyer, incorporated under Florida laws, and petitioned the National Labor Relations Board for a representational hearing, citing terms of the settlement both sides had signed after the strike election. ALPA went to federal court, charging that the company union was a violation of the duly signed contract. The court agreed, thus excluding the scabs from further participation on the grounds that only those pilots who had been working when the strike began were eligible to vote. Legally, under Title II of the Railway Labor Act, there was no way they could succeed with a decertification deal, which was being handled by ALPA's national office in Chicago. But the pilots also had a way to fight, burning more than usual amounts of fuel on flights under the guise of improved engine cooling of the 3,350-horsepower engines. In the end, the pilots were burning more fuel than management could buy, and the company's industrial relations man told pilots that, We give up. You're breaking us. But Baker hadn't really given up. He had merely staged a tactical retreat owing to economic necessity. Originally, the ALPA strikers feared that Baker would use the checkout process to eliminate them. They anticipated that trick and avoided it by contractual guarantees in the settlement. All check rides would be given by pilots from other airlines, temporarily assigned to national airlines with ALPA's concurrence. Since the backbone of National's fleet was still the old Lockheed Lodestar, an aircraft few airlines operated anymore, this presented something of a problem. Two pilots, Leo Colin of Mid-Continent and Buck Steers of Northeast Airlines, were eventually found to begin checking out the returning strikers. Flight 406 from Miami to New York departed at 8.20 p.m. on December 21, 1949. The captain of the DC-6 was Ed McDonald, and his co-pilot was an ex-captain, a scab named Richard Hedenbaugh, who was also the president of the scab union. McDonald had been, in his own words, a rabble-rouser for the strike, and he was on Ted Baker's hit list. Jesse Mays, a non-pilot flight engineer, rounded out the crew. But riding in the jump seat, was National Airlines Vice President for Operations, Lou Diamond, a captain who had never flown on an airline before the strike and who was subsequently checked out as a scab. His pilot qualifications were minimal, 
and he already had one accident as a co-pilot. Hitting the approach lights during landing at New York's Idlewild several months earlier. On December 29, 1949, McDonald received a letter from Joe Bailey, National's chief pilot, informing them that he was fired because of a report submitted on his performance by Diamond. The report alleged that McDonald had committed six unsafe acts during the December 21st flight, including poor flying technique and extremely poor judgment during a precision ILS approach landing at Newark. In a move reminiscent of the Maston-O'Neill case, management offered to keep him, but only in a non-flying position, which McDonald suspected meant as a baggage handler. McDonald promptly appealed to his local ALPA council for help. It had taken a full-scale strike to get a neutral hearing for Maston-O'Neill. But McDonald was luckier. His future as an airline pilot would ride with the judgment of Saul Wallen, a professional arbitrator assigned by the National Mediation Board. Lucky for McDonald, Wallen was well known as an honest man and knowledgeable on aviation, which didn't help management's position. Every Alpa loyalist who lost a job opened up one more position for a scab, who was on the payroll but not flying. So it was to the company's advantage to bring dismissal charges. The scab union, we must remember, was still trying to unseat Alpa as the bargaining agent for Nationals pilots. Next time on Flying the Line, the fight for Captain McDonald's career begins as National Airlines attempts to break the Union, and Alpa goes to new heights in defending pilots. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 14 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright Alpa 2020. All rights reserved.